Hi, I'm Jamie Wincup from Red Bull Racing Australia. I'm Dave Reynolds. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm Jazz Mostert, and you're listening it to is, look, it's Inside great. It's a fun track. Um, I was conceived on the bulb, so um, <laughs> been, been here before. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the number one target on our radar. We're all about winning races and trying to win a championship at the moment, but but we, you know, Kim and I chip away at it, but right now we have nothing. Sometimes they're not dickhead, you could say. It's just it's, they're just... There's, <laughs> Good racing, and I enjoy it. From the racetracks across Australia and around the world, here's Inside Supercars. Hello and welcome to Inside Supercars for another week. Joining me is a, well, a gentleman we've had on the show a number of times, formerly from Auto Action, Lewis Isaacs. Good evening, Craig. And... First time on the show for Matt Kosh, who is, of course, a Velocity magazine. Great to have you on the show, Matt. Thanks, Craig. Hi, uh, Lewis. Hi, everyone. And uh, I guess, uh, why don't we start first start with um, Lewis. Auto action, how was that Friday, last Friday, when it was a wrap? Um, it was a very weird occasion, actually. You know, we were, we were given pretty short notice as you can imagine, in these kind of things. And we we do what we always do. We managed to put out a magazine in a pretty short turnaround. And um, there was a bit of sadness when we sent the final pages. But I think, personally, for a lot of us, it's um, you know a chance to try something different, perhaps. We're not sure what the future of the, the publication is. We're not really privy to that as far as Bauer and a possible new owner is concerned. For us, it's just it, it's a bit strange, you know. The, the racing's on this weekend, and... There's no obligation to do anything, but that doesn't mean we're not because we're fans of the, the sport first and foremost. But um, yeah, very mixed emotions. You know, we kind of kind of wrapped it up, not knowing if it's the end or not, which is um, this weird kind of sense. Mm. Very Game of Thrones, Jon Snow. <laughs> well, yes, we'll see whether he is actually alive next week. Um, I think everyone thinks he is. But Matt, you went through a very similar situation, which I don't know if Lewis is aware of this, when you were. You know, you packed up shop and moved to work for a magazine in England. Uh, not in England. It was in, uh, it was in Sydney. It was a very short-lived publication. But uh, I joined the team there and uh, I literally climbed off my motorbike going to work that morning. got the phone call saying, don't bother coming in. There's no magazine anymore. Um, so that's... Um, I, I think the longer you're in the, the media game the increased risk you have of coming across these things. Magazines do close all the time, unfortunately. I think auto actions loss is, is particularly hard felt because there aren't many voices out there anymore. Um, we had Motorsport News a couple of years ago as well. It's, it's sad to see publications go because more than anything, diversity means that we're all keeping each other on our toes and that means better coverage for, for the fans. Mm. And I guess that is the the short-term problem that once a week there's not going to be a glossy magazine in the newsstands for people to get a broad range of motorsport uh, information, Lewis? Yeah, it's a, you know, not just a a personal kind of loss, but I think for the sport itself, you know, it doesn't look good for um, for motorsport in Australia to know that it can't sustain a weekly print title and there are very few actual, you know, specialist Australian print titles out there. You know, you can... You can really count them on one hand these days. Um, and you're right, you know, there was competition. We were kind of branched out to digital, which, um, you know, worked to some degree. And it kind of it presented some new challenges for us in the print world because we had to, to find that balance between 
what's news and what's not and how you reinvent the magazine and you know what a lot of people didn't really appreciate about auto, appreciate about auto action was its international coverage you know we had Dan Knutson going to every Formula One race he was a um, 500 race veteran we had Kurt Cavan the IndyCar reporter Jerry was going to rallies all around the world we had this you know this field of experts these guys weren't just top and tailing press releases and calling it you know F1 news they were actually there and on the ground and they had insights in it. so if you followed those kind of sports too there was, there was value every week and um yeah, it's just a bit sad, I think, for the sport. And as Matt said, you know, we've lost a bit of competition now. So, you know, who else is there apart from, you know, you've got Speed Cafe, you've got Supercars website, you've got Matt doing his work, you've got V8X. But, you know, it's it's pretty common to see some uh, some half-full media centres these days, and I guess it's a, a bit quieter even now. Yeah, indeed. And, uh, Matt, you, you've decided that publishing is your security, I guess, uh, along with some other media work you're doing. How hard was it to make a decision to start publishing and editing your magazine, which, of course, started as a digital only and now is a print magazine as well as a digital magazine? That's right. We've sort of gone the reverse to the, the, the trend in that we started it electronically and we've moved into print. The biggest thing that, that we found is that trying to sell a, a digital product, you're not getting anything tangible out of it. So going out to potential advertisers is very, very difficult when you don't really have a, a product per se. They, you know, they, can't, they can't hold a website in their hands um, like you, you can a magazine. As soon as we made the change, and I, you know, hand on heart, it was an absolute gamble. Um, I didn't know if it would work or not. And you know, thankfully it did. The, the, the interest that we had from, from advertisers and the readers just took the, uh, the publication to a whole new level. It, it, it really quite surprised me. I always thought that the electronic thing was, was the way to go. Um, but then even in that world, I was uh, editor of GP Week magazine last year, and that's a publication that had 200,000 readers globally. He couldn't find advertising, and it's, uh, it's a publication at the end of last season. Yeah. Where is the future, Lewis, from what you've experienced and how you read the tea leaves? Um, well, I think, you know, when you make a print product, you've got to remember that you're charging a premium for it, so it's got to be essentially a premium product, and you've got to work harder than everyone else to make it kind of last. Because if something happens on a Sunday and you're going to shelves on a Thursday, you've got to find a way of making that content, you know, interesting, educational, entertaining, and engaging. And that's that's quite difficult. That's um that's not something they really teach at university or you know in PR school. You've really got to to work to find that voice. But um you know there is still a market for that. You know the the print product itself was probably or it definitely was the most profitable part of auto action. We had the um, the one-off specials last year, which also made a bit of money. Uh, I think publishing in general, you know, Bauer owned auto action, and Bauer is a massive company. Um, you know, Women's Weekly's probably got, you know, about 100 staff, I imagine, and you know, I never got to go on those floors. Um, Cosmo, which is uh, still there, has plenty of staff. You know, they dwarfed auto action, and we, we shared a floor together. Um, you know, you have these kind of things. Clio was closed, and that had a, a big staff, and you know, Auto Action outlived them. So, the, the concern in these in these big companies is that the overheads are quite high. Before you even sell an issue, you've got to pay for, you know, your rent in a in a city high rise. You've got to pay for a marketing team that a small magazine probably won't use. You've got to pay, you know, your share for the IT department, which could have you know, ten people, and you've got to pay all these things. And you know, that's that's a a loss before you've even made a you know made a copy of your magazine. So I imagine 
you know, for print in niche sports like motorsport, it's probably going to go a bit more DIY, which is, um, you know, math approach. You probably wouldn't have those overheads that Auto Action had, and you can, you know, you can find a good designer for a good price. You can source his own material for, you know, a good price, and then you can find a, a printer and distribution, and, you know, he's only out of pocket for that cost, not anything else. And I think that's the way of the future, and if Auto Action does get bought, I hope it's by a small niche publisher who kind of can invest without having to, um, you know, go into debt beforehand. I guess in a crude sense, Matt, for you at Velocity, you've now got a, a larger number of people you can draw on to write quality articles for you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, guys like Lewis and, and Cameron and, and Fogues that you had on last week, you know, there are some really top draw writers out there that there is a lack of them. You touched on it last week, I know, but there's a lack of, of good writers coming through the system. There's, there's precious few that I know of. Thankfully, I've, I've snuffled up one early on, but I, I think Lewis is right. Being, a, I guess, a bit of a, a solo warrior, you can go out and you can pick printers and, you know, even silly things like the page, uh, the paperweight and things that you can use. There's all things that you've then got control over that can either increase the look and feel of the product or decrease the price of it or all sorts of things that are at your disposal uh, at your disposal that if you're in a major publication or a publication house you're not going to have that freedom because you're going to be lumbered with what their what their corporate standards are mm. well it is going to be an interesting time ahead but we do need to talk about a lot more than just the media and after the break we're going to look at what's going on in perth I hope you'll stay with us on Inside Cars. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Bought Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Fabian Coulthard, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, Through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Begley in the final, which uh, we were able to do, um, take the win off him. So, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Raptor family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Fabian Coulthard, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back to Inside Supercars with Matt Kosh and Lewis Isaacs. And Perth this weekend, Lewis, it, it's another short track. It's another, uh, I'll say, bullring-type circuit. And I think for a lot of fans, these are the ones that are interesting. If you can go into the pits and come out a lap down if anything goes wrong, that really sharpens your senses. Yeah, well, Perth's got a lot of interesting characteristics. Um, you know, half the track's hidden from the main street, so you don't really know what's going on there. There's a bit of undulation change. The biggest thing is um, you know, degradation at the track. So even in short races, strategy really plays a key role, which is um, I think with the, the soft tyre running there in particular, it's going to be interesting because you're going to have that 120k race, which we had at Tasmania, and the tyres you know, did the, great, did the job there, but they're probably not going to be like that at Perth. Um, so I think that's going to make it a, a pretty fascinating re- weekend. But the short circuits, you're right, there's action you know, pretty much everywhere on the track, which suits this kind of sport because... When it's so close, it's hard to overtake, but it also means there are like fierce battles throughout the field. So while someone, you know, while the cameras might be on the leaders, you know, 14th and 15th could be the best battle of the field. And if you're at the track, you get to see that. And um, yeah, it really suits this kind of this racing, the street circuits that you know have were favourable a couple of years ago. 
they've got their, their their strengths and weaknesses. But these kind of tracks, like again Simmons and um, you know to a degree Winton as well, they seem to you know the racing always seems to uh, save the product. Yeah, and it has been interesting, Matt, to see how the teams have all been trying to balance up the new format, the soft tyres, and what they can do to try and get ahead of a field in in, in a you know a cookie cutter class. Very much so. I think Lewis raised a good point there that the tyres will be important because if you miss the mark even just a little bit this weekend, because it's such a short circuit, any mistake is going to be magnified. As you say, you don't need to get it too wrong. You can go a lap down. So that really means the teams are going to be on edge. There's increased pressure, not just on the drivers, but on the pit crew and on the the guys back in the garage making the strategic calls to get the job right. And that's going to be a constantly moving target. So there's not going to be, you know, there'll be a plan going into the race but that'll almost certainly change by the end of lap one. Mm. It's going to be also very interesting to see how the, the the balance of the short race, long race plays out and whether we'll get big differences, Lewis, between the two days because that is one of the difficulties is normally someone who hits on it in qualifying on Saturday repeats that on Sunday. Yeah, well, the, the, the real key to these 120k races is they've got a... Um a pit stop of worth now, you know, you've actually got to factor that in. When you had a 60k race, you were just, you know, it was basically a train, you know, it was a parade. So that kind of plays a, has a pretty significant role because you can either go short at the start or go long, you know, or do what DJR seemed to do and run your cars exactly the halfway and kind of balance it best. But the, the longer races, you know, there's, there's more of that because, you know, you do have the fuel feel, you've got more, or, you know, that's going to cause two stops at least. And, um, yeah, I don't think it repeats the results because over recent years we used to always saw, you know, you'd see kind of different winners on Sunday, and it was something Mark Winterbottom picked up on last year. You know, he was always there or thereabouts on Saturday, but he could make it count on Sunday because the points were greater. And um, you know, I think that element's still at play there. And uh, it's going to be also um, interesting to look at Erebus returning to Perth, where they had their win last year, Matt, and they've got Commodores this year and a very quick driver if they can get the setup. And that's going to be the key thing for them really, isn't it? Because they're going there with what's effectively, it's not a brand new car, but for them it is. They don't have the data like they did on the Mercedes. So everything they learned with Davison last year is out the window more or less. Um, they've got a data sharing agreement with, with Walkinshaw, though as I understand it, they're not using that and they're sort of going it alone. Um, It'll be interesting. I, I, I must. Admit, I don't expect a lot from Erebus at all this year, just because they need time to learn. And I think Barbara Gallo being such a short a short circuit, it punishes you that they don't have that uh, that data. I expect them to be uh, bringing up the rear this weekend. If I'm perfectly honest. Mm, all right. Now, um, the captain Lewis Roger Penske dropping in to check out how his team's progressing, and based on Phillip Island, it's progressing damn well. Well, I think there's a misperception about the JR team Penske at the moment. They're qualifying well, you know, and they seem to always have at least one car there. But you look at where they are in the points, and that's really what matters at the end of the day. And and Coulthard's down the, the bottom end, so, you know, it's all, all show and not a lot of go, in my opinion, right now. Um, clearly, they're not very far away, and, and Perth was arguably their worst weekend 
last year. You know, Scott Pye, it was his first proper hit out, or second, I think, in the car. They'd had that test day. Roger was in town. There was a lot of pressure, and they, they really got it wrong. So this weekend's their chance to make amends. The second car is clearly working for them because they've got twice the data. They're amortizing the costs across, you know, running two two teams or two cars, essentially. Um, they've recruited well. They've picked their engineers, you know, um, Adam DeBoer is very good at making a, quick, a car quick, whereas Phil Key just seems to have this really good relationship with Fabian Coulthard. I think they're much better this year, but again, it's only ever one car that seems to finish really well per race, and uh, the other one floundered, so they've really got to um, maximise that because it's that old thing where, you know, there's that cliched saying, to finish first, first you've got to finish, and, and they're not doing that at the moment. Mm. Well, who's going to win, Matt? I think it's difficult to go beyond uh, Craig Lowndes. I think he just seems to get the life out of the tyres that, that not many other people do. He's got an affinity for, for Barbara Gallo as well. Um, he hasn't had the results this year that he had last, and I, I think his performance in Phillip Island and certainly in Simmons Plains show that he's lost none of his speed. So I think where it counts and when it counts, I think Craig will, uh, will come to the fore this weekend. Mm. Well, it's definitely going to be an interesting one. Lewis, have you got a tip for us? Uh, I think there's two guys worth following uh, in particular, and that's Shane Van Gisbergen, because he's always seemed to struggle at Perth. Um, For whatever reason, he hasn't clicked there. And that was pretty evident at Techno. So keep an eye on Will Davison, because he's been quite good this year. Phillip Island wasn't his best round, but obviously they were were good at Tasmania. To see if it's, you know, Techno or Shane that was causing the problems at... um, at Perth is going to be kind of fascinating because if it was the team and not Shane, then this is the kind of weekend where he can get his championship back on track because he can't afford to have two poor rounds, which Tasmania was in the end. You know, he was fast, but he didn't get the points. And if this one doesn't work out for him, then you can almost kiss the championship goodbye. Mm, it's an interesting time ahead. I actually, like you, Matt, think that it's going to be Lowndes' weekend. But, well, we will have to wait and see until Saturday afternoon to see which way that is going. We'll take a break here on Inside Supercars. There's plenty more to chat about when we return. The views expressed on Inside Supercars, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect the views of the network, Thunder Media or Sport Radio. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. This year in Formula 3, I think it's a fantastic environment for me to be doing that. However, I believe for myself, uh, a sustainable career in tin tops such as Fiat Supercars in Australia is where I see myself. Second crack at the Australian time since we've been back and a bit unlucky the first time that we end up with a win there at Speedway City uh, two weeks ago. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Matt Kosh and Lewis Isaacs joining me, Craig Ravel. And, guys, a number of other stories that uh, lead us into the uh, 2016 visit to Perth. And I guess uh, one of them is we've been talking about safety. And Erebus have moved the e-cell from the AMG what is it, E64, it's that long ago since it was on the track, I've forgotten the name, and uh, have got it into the Commodore now, Lewis. Yeah, well, it's something they pioneered from the early days when they were working very closely with HWA and uh, AMG, and, you know, everyone inside that team seems to think it's the safest option out there. Um, you know, it's basically a 
a miniature cockpit which the driver sits in, so there's extra leg protection, and uh, it's pretty common in, in Mercedes's DTM cars, from what I understand. They've just kind of patented patented their own version. Um, an incident like James Courtney and Alex Premer in 2013 was one where you kind of would have seen a significant difference, according to the team, and they, they really pushed to make it mandatory, but as far as supercars is concerned, this seat and everything else meets FIA requirements, um, so there's no... There's no reason for them to kind of force every team to go out and buy this one particular component if everything they've got is deemed safe enough by the world's you know, governing body. I would suggest to you if it was made by one of two other teams, it would already be a mandatory item. <laughs> well, um, you know, that's just the luck of the drawer, isn't it? You know, this is a safety measurement, they say, though, not just you know, a production cost or anything. Because mm. I, I imagine it would cost a bit more, given, you know, the, the complexity of it all. But it's, it's good that they've brought it back and that they're still pioneering. Um, Hopefully, we never have to find out how good it actually is. No. Now, interestingly, Matt, over in Scandinavia last weekend, uh, young Scott McLaughlin put on the uh, helmet and made a, a reasonable account of himself in the Scandinavian Touring Car Championship with uh, a, a successful podium the first outing and then a, a bit of bang and crash in the second go-round. He didn't quite go to plan in the second race, did it? Um, don't think he got beyond the first lap there. It's... Uh before he got T-boned, but a good performance, and it goes to show that the quality of drivers that we've got in V8 supercars is world-class, because to transfer the skills that he's got here and what is a very unique race car, to go and jump in you know, one of these STCC cars, which are a different beast altogether, uh, different engine configuration, all that sort of stuff, and to be immediately on the pace, nobody expected that. It's just a testament to the skill that the guys are running at the front of our championship really have. Mm. And Lewis, uh, I guess he probably got informed whilst he was there that uh, Volvo or Polestar weren't going to continue with the V8 supercar program. Yeah, uh, that seems like a matter of semantics, the whole, you know, Cyan racing, Polestar, Volvo support. Um, You know, I guess I saw a bit of news about it tonight, which I'm not sure how to kind of interpret because you know the good word a week ago was that volvo itself is you know still looking to continue polestar was the racing arm it's the tuning arm now there's cyan which is the racing you know side of the business um yeah i'm not entirely sure what to read into that Mm, matt what's your read on it? it it's a bit strange isn't it um on one hand you've got volvo saying yes we're fully behind v8 supercars and it's all going guns blazes on the other hand, you've got them saying, yeah, we're, we're done with this. It seems strange to me that Gary Rogers would have absolutely known what was happening, that he would have jumped on a plane and gone over to uh, to Sweden. That, to me, said one or two things. One, it was either a crisis meeting, and if it was a crisis meeting, then you know, we wouldn't have heard some of the things that have come out in recent weeks. Um, or it was just a case of you know, doing a bit of PR and, and meeting and greeting. And I, I think that's probably more what it is. The news of Polestar's withdrawal, or whatever you want to call it, I'm with Lewis, I think it's semantics, and I don't think it, it ultimately matters at all. Certainly it won't matter for next year anyway. But is this, uh, is this a real concern for what um, various supercars, or supercars as we will know them from July is trying to achieve. They just don't have 
the manufacturers' support in what they are currently doing? Well, if you go back to 2013 and you look at, you know, what Nissan had to do to get on the grid and, you know, the hoops they had to jump through and then you compare that to Erebus and they were quite different. And again, you know, the initial Volvo, it was the outlier because it was quick, but, you know, the rules were kind of blurred for two teams and not for one. And I think because of that, no one quite wants to be the first person out to adopt the, the Gen 2 rules because it could be the making of a team, but then again, you know, you could be putting them back to essentially the, the foot of the grid if you get it wrong. And it, it sounds a bit like too much change too soon. Supercars themselves haven't really put that turbo V6 that's, you know, been in discussions for over a year now on the track. You know, that's not finished, which is clearly an indication that they're, you know, A, really busy, or B, that it's a very complicated process to kind of get an engine like that to perform at the same level as everything else. Um, the Ford situation's pretty much well documented that the the local arm, just the marketing department would rather focus on other areas. That's well, The bottom line is the young girl bouncing down the hallway sells more cars than a race car on the track. Yeah. That's the bottom line. It sounds like Holden's, you know, and... You know, you speak to folks about this, but it sounds like Holden's taking a very similar approach now. You've got people that aren't necessarily car people in the company that, you know, need to be convinced that motorsport's the way forward. Volvo, is, you know, they've had that sporting arm for a long time when there was the factory teams in the 80s and 90s in Super Tours um, to try to promote the performance arm. But, you know, you're hearing words from, you know, the Volvo boss a couple of years ago that they just want to sell four-cylinder engines. And then you hear the Polestar boss saying they want turbochargers with, you know, electric motors as well, and that's that's their thing. So the V8 doesn't necessarily fit in with a lot of manufacturers' um, plans. So the Gen 2 thing kind of makes sense in a degree that, you know, that they're welcome to try whatever they like now, but again, for competitive reasons, no one seems to want to give it a go in case they get it wrong, which happened to Nissan, and they were the first involved, and that was a factory-backed outfit. Mm, and yes, and uh, there was a lot of lessons learned up and down the grid about making an announcement 12 months before or even more than 12 months before you put your car on the track. Well, but I don't think they were, they were right in doing that because it gave them 12 months to get ready. The problem was not everything was finalised and, you know, they had to all of a sudden change their 5.6-litre engine into a 5 and, and so forth. So mm. they were up against it from the start. Um, the Gen 2, there's no reason why Volvo couldn't say, all right, we'll continue in 2017, that's next year, right, yep. with a V8 and try to work on something different after that. You know, the rules are there in perpetuity, as Mr. Warburton always says, for that kind of change. But um, clearly, yeah, everyone's a bit afraid to, to be bold in that kind of uh, arena. Mm. Well, we need to take another break here on Inside Supercars. But when we return, we need to talk about some of the driver announcements that have been made over the last few days. Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Sport Radio Facebook page. Hi, I'm Nick Perkett. You are listening to Inside Supercars. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Still a bit in shock. Uh, <laughs> thanks, thanks, everyone. Dissecting the sport with interviews, news and opinion. Got to put money back into the sport at the lower levels to develop the kids and bring them up. You can't rely upon good luck for Daniel Ricciardo's old man to have found a few mates to tip some money in and send him overseas. There actually needs to be a structure. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm James Moffat. Hi, I'm Michael Caruso. And And you're you're listening listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. Lewis Isaacs and also Matt 
Kosh joining me, Craig Revelland. Guys, uh, were you surprised to hear that Russell Ingall would be driving in the endurance races? And then my second question, Matt, is were you surprised it was with Nissan? Was I surprised you hear it being in Jerez? No. Um, that was a pretty poorly kept secret when, as soon as he sort of logged into to Winton last week. Um, you know, he's got good experience. He's going to get good good television exposure for the team. You know, there's more to motorsport than just the performance on track, and I think Russell brings a lot of, uh, a lot of those extra benefits to him, to any team. Um, and I think getting him on board early was... Uh, was a good thing. Um, what was the second question? Were you surprised it was with Nissan? Was I, no, to be perfectly honest. Um, it made sense. He sampled the Ford. He sampled the Holden. Uh, Nissan was in the market for an endurance driver. No other big team really is. Um, Alex Buncombe has got other commitments this year, so there was a free seat there. The pieces just fit too nicely together. Um, and Russell was always an outsider for something like that. He's got good experience and, and all the extra benefits he brings. It's it's too good an opportunity, both from performance and from a marketing perspective, I think, for, for Nissan to say no to. All right. Um, Lewis, that has meant that uh, David Russell now is moving over to join uh, um, Dale Wood. Yeah, and... and David Russell's been in that team since 2011, I believe. So he he knows his way around the Ultima. He's um he's dealt with the the not so good version, the the decent one, and now the the current spec, which seems to be much better. He kind of brings a bit more value, I think, um, to someone like Dale Wood because he does know the team. He, he knows his job. He's he's tried and tested, and you know I think driving with there's a certain expectation you've got to meet because Rick's the uh, the consummate professional, and for him to to do that for so many years shows you how well regarded he is. The only concern with um, with Russell is that he's not racing regularly at the moment. Last year he was doing his Carrera Cup stuff. He was doing a bit of GT around the world. This year he's, he's gone a bit quiet. I'm sure we can speak to our friend Paul Marinelli and find out exactly what's going on. But, um, yeah, that's, that's my only concern, that he's not racing enough of anything because normally in these endurance contracts with teams, that's uh, one of the conditions that you are racing something. And it kind of surprised me that Taz Douglas didn't get the go because... Uh, He's doing the Dunlop series this year. He's doing the Kumo series. And from within Nissan, he was very well regarded. That first campaign in 2013, he was kind of considered the fastest co-driver they had. And he's really the only one in that lineup who's doing regular V8 racing. So that was um, a bit strange. And hopefully he can get a seat because on, um, he finished second at Bathurst with Moffat a couple of years ago. And he's, he's a very good driver. Yep. And uh, I guess... With the announcement that there will only be supercars from July, Lewis, do you think that that is going to help or hinder the marketing of the series? Or is it going to get it into that sort of um, two-litre super touring days where it was just people could drive or could buy the cars that they were seeing on the track, but they just didn't want to watch them? Uh I think, you know, it's not the first major rebrand the series has had. You've got to remember for, for so many years it was called the Australian Touring Car Championship and even in V8 supercars it was, you know, the Shell Australian V8 supercars or whatever it was called, you know. So it's just Shell the, series, the, I think it was called. Yeah, it's just the next evolutionary step. Um, you know, we refer to it colloquially, colloquially as the V8s. Um, 
you know, that might change if anyone joins with a V6, and I guess that's what they're covering off. It's it's a bit more forward thinking. I don't think it's going to hurt the uh, the core race fans, to be honest, because as you see in other sports that have kind of dramas off the field or off the park, whatever, the sporting product itself always saves it, and uh, supercars will continue to produce good racing. Bathurst is always going to draw that you know that mainstream attention, and uh, this is just the next step in what they kind of had to do. So. I don't think it's going to hurt them at all, to be honest. Mm. All right. Well, it's going to be interesting to see. Matt, what's your read on the, the rebrand and the, the sponsorship from Virgin? Uh, I think in terms of the product, it doesn't change anything. It's a bit like what Cart and IndyCar was back in the day. We always referred to it as IndyCar, even though it was Cart. Um, and I think Virgin coming on board, it's it's a good opportunity for the for V8 supercars to, to just neatly undo um, was probably some, some short-sighted branding back in the uh, in the 90s because V8s were never going to be around forever and it was it was a very exclusive brand or, or product name. Uh, by dropping that V8 moniker, it, it brands the series, I think, the way it should have always been. So it's not going to change anything and it, it's just a logical progression I think what the series should have always been called, if I'm perfectly honest. Mm, it will be interesting to see how it all pans out. We need to take a break and then a final thought. And, of course, who will you, who would you rather be up next here on Inside Supercars? Join in the conversation. Post your thoughts on our Facebook page. And to ask a question, email insiders at sportradio.com.au. Each week, join the Inside Motorsport team as they look at all the news from across Australia and around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it means a lot. You know, through the years, a lot of reference this race is one of our majors. 600 miles around here is no easy task. Uh, we were able to beat the two levels to the boys and, uh, and meet Anthony Bigley in the final, which uh, we were able to do, um, take the win off him. So, it was, uh, yeah, it was a great weekend for the uh, Raptor family. Inside Motorsport broadcast on community radio and online at sportradio.com.au. Hi, I'm David Reynolds, and you're listening to Inside Supercars. Welcome back to Inside Supercars. A final thought, Lewis Isaacs. Uh, this weekend at Perth, I think the racing is going to be, uh, you know, fascinating to watch. I really enjoy, you know, as you said, the bullring tracks on these new formats. Personally, I think it's going to be, um, you know, mixed emotions because all of a sudden I don't have that work interest in it myself. Um, I can go back to being a fan, uh, and that's going to be kind of nice in its own way, but yeah, sitting on the sidelines and not being involved, I think, is uh, going to be a little tough at times. Mm. Matt Kosh, final thought. Yeah, I think Shane Van Gisbergen this weekend is one to keep an eye on. He had an up-and-down weekend, or perceived to be an up-and-down weekend, in Phillip Island. But he's always been a little bit like that. He's, he's had traditionally one average or bad race over a race weekend. So it'll be interesting to see how he goes at a circuit that he's not thrived on in the past, one that does punish mistakes uh, at a new team, in a new car, comparing him, as as Lewis said earlier, against a guy in his old car to see how that shakes out because this could be a very defining moment in the championship because from uh, from sixth or seventh down in the, in the championship standings, we really do start to open a, uh, a gap from this weekend. Mm. Well, it's now time for the game that everyone loves. Who would you rather be? First to you, Matt, who would you rather be? Russell Ingle or David Russell? I think Russell Ingle. 
Um, you've got the opportunity to jump in a VA supercar. You've you've got plenty of exposure to go and market yourself with. That opens doors for uh, for all sorts of things in the future. Not being there, I think being in David Russell's shoes, you don't have that that same platform to to beat your own drum. So it makes the chance of getting another drive all the more difficult. So I'm going to go with Russell Lindell. All right, now Lewis Isaac, who would you rather be? Lucas Dumbrell or Lucas Dumbrell Motorsports, the little team that wins Clipsal, or Leicester City, the one that takes the Premier League? Oh, Leicester City, you know. <laughs> anyone can cause an upset on their day, but to do it across nine months or really a year because they had that run at the end of uh, last season, definitely them. Um, there's a lot to that story. I, I guess we could go on for another hour about that, but um, yeah, I think that's the most fascinating story in sports that we'll ever kind of encounter in our lifetime because there are a million, million, million reasons why it shouldn't have happened, but it did. And uh, the fact that they've done it with two games in hand is just unbelievable. Mm. I unfortunately am old enough to remember a couple other miracles on ice in the, well, Premier League before it was the EPL. Um, And there has been some remarkable stories out of of that league. But uh, all right. I'd rather be a POM than an Aussie. That's the way you're playing it here. I've got both passports, remember, mate. <laughs> Look, great to have you back on the show, Lewis, and all the best. Uh, I guess the gratuitous plug out now for uh, anyone who wants to get in touch with you to uh, write a few stories for them. Yeah, uh, I'm available. Um, you might see me at Everly Centrelink soon enough, but uh, you, can, you can hit me up or I'll speak with Craig or or whatever, but definitely keen to stay in the game. I'll take my uh, finder's fee. won't be too much yep. at all. And, uh, Matt, pleasure to have you on the show and uh, look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. It's, uh, it was a good, uh, good chat. That's all we have time for this week on Inside Supercars. Until next time around, keep smiling and bye for now. Inside Supercars is produced by Thunder Media. Tune in next week for more at sportradio.com.au or lock in the podcast on your iTunes or mobile device, search Inside Supercars.